1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for the channel. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast Dan Flores, A.B. Hammond Professor Emeritus of Western History at the University of Montana, and the author of 10 books on environmental history and the West, including The Natural West, Environmental History in the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains, American Serengeti, The Last Big Animals of the Great Plains, and the book we're going to talk about today, Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History, which came out last year with basic books. Dan, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you, Stephen. I'm proud to be
1: here. Why don't we start by hearing a little bit about yourself? How did you come to become a historian in the first place?
0: Well, uh, I would have to say that story probably goes back to my uh, growing up years in Louisiana. Uh, I come from a old colonial Louisiana family that had uh, Indian traders and explorers in it back in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And I kind of grew up hearing stories about that, uh, which for a very long time I thought probably was uh, the primary cause of my interest in the West, and no doubt uh, those stories played some role, but I found out when I was about 35 or 36 years old on a visit back to Louisiana for a family reunion that when I was four years old, I had been taken uh, out west, uh, to, uh, see a couple of the national parks, uh, particularly Carlsbad Caverns in, uh, southeastern New Mexico. And, uh, that sort of explained these dreams I had as a kid of western landscapes, western skies. I never knew exactly where they came from, but evidently they came from this experience I had, uh, that I can barely remember. I was so young. I was only wasn't even four yet, I was about three and a half, but I have these images that sort of uh, were around for most of my growing up years and long perplexed me, but certainly gave me a fascination with the West.
1: And what led you to write about coyotes specifically for this book?
0: You know, the same kind of early growing up experiences play a role, there's no question, in the writing of that book. I mean, uh, my first experience with Coyotes goes back to the time I was 12, 13, 14 years old. Uh, I was a great fan of uh, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. And so in 1961, when I was about 12, I saw the first of what became half a dozen pro-coyote films he did in the 60s and 70s. Uh, That first one was called The Coyote's Lament. And so I became kind of intrigued by those animals, which I associated as in the film with western deserts and then only a couple of years later uh, not too far from my parents home out in the woods of Louisiana I saw an animal that so intrigued me that I went home and wrote a letter to Louisiana Parks and Wildlife telling them that I thought I'd seen a wolf in Caddo Parish, Louisiana and they wrote back in a couple of weeks and said, well, you might have seen a wolf. There still may be some red wolves in that part of the state, but probably what you saw was a coyote because coyotes are now colonizing Louisiana. And I thought that was just a, sort of a marvelous thing to be experiencing, this animal from the West that seemed to be spreading into the bayous and hills of Louisiana. So that kind of gave me a fascination with them and with uh, sort of the arc of the story of the book, a good bit of which uh, has to do with why coyotes uh, expanded out of the West starting about a hundred years ago and why indeed they have been so remarkably successful when the environmental story of so many other species, uh, some of the other elements of the environment seem to be sort of a disaster. I mean, this was a completely counterintuitive story where something, uh, a large mammal that we tried to control and tried, in fact, to exterminate from North America ended up sort of expanding across the continent and, and taking over the very ground where we stood. And that was a kind of, uh, as I said, a counterintuitive story that I think appealed to me after writing uh, quite a number of books where the story is a uh, not not quite as inspiring and delightful as that.
1: Hmm. You call in the book you call coyotes an American avatar. Uh, what do you mean by this? Explain that.
0: Yeah, I in fact I even titled one of the chapters "American Avatar." I think my initial sort of recognition of the function that coyotes play as an avatar. As a stand-in for humans, and I, as I uh, describe it in the introduction of the book, I intend Avatar to refer to uh, not its far-eastern religious connotations, but to how we use it in modern computing and gaming, where the Avatar is a figure on the screen who stands in for the person at the keyboard. And as I began to look at the coyote story... Uh, and realize that at various points in time, including probably the most famous example, our oldest literature from North America are the coyote stories uh, from the native people that probably go back 10,000 years, in which the coyote is, he's this human-animal combination. He stands up on hind legs. He has opposable thumbs, but he has a coyote's head, coyote's ears, a coyote's tail. And he's the primary protagonist in hundreds of these stories, and indeed a kind of a semi-deity. And I realized as I began to, to read those accounts and those stories from various tribes for one of the chapters in the book, that what Coyote really was, was he was a stand-in for human beings. I mean, we've tended to think of those stories as being uh, trickster stories, and I argue in my first chapter, uh, which is called Old Man America, and it's about these stories, that Coyote in them really uh, has been marginalized by referring to him as a trickster, because it's not the, the trickster part of the story that's important. It's not the trick. It's why the trick works. And the reason the trick works in these stories is because Coyote is demonstrating for Native people and for all of us now that we have access to these tales, uh, these deep insights, uh, long ago ancient insights into human nature. The reason we do the things we do, the reason we're susceptible to the kinds of tricks that we're susceptible to is because of our nature, and that's what those stories really elucidate and lay out for us uh, in a very transparent way. So that sort of put me onto the idea of coyote as an avatar stand-in. And then I began to realize that in an evolutionary way, uh, coyotes are very similar to us. Our successes uh, for both species tend to stem from the same kind of evolutionary adaptations. They're fish infusion animals uh, as we are. And what that means is that both we and coyotes are mammals that can survive, and it's a fairly rare strategy, that can survive as both members of a group, uh, in the case of coyotes as members of a pack, or as individuals going it alone. And that's that's been very critical to coyotes' success in America and their spread. It's been critical to our survival across long-term human history. And So I realized that there are these evolutionary similarities. They survive by being intelligent. So do we. So it's cleverness that really kind of is the key element of survivability for both of us. And then finally, I kind of end the book in a uh, a reference that uh, almost all of us who grew up in the late 20th century can uh, easily recognize. We just haven't thought about it in these terms. But Probably the most visible to us of how Coyote has functioned as an avatar is in the Coyote Roadrunner stories, <laughs> where Wiley Coyote, the super genius of the flickering blue screen and Saturday morning cartoons from 1948 all the way through the 1990s, is this sort of American everyman. And what he teaches us about, of course, is uh, about uh, obsession about humiliation. And once he discovers the Acme Corporation, his lessons tend to verge onto how to be uh, a good consumer, or in his case, how not to be a very good consumer because nothing he buys from Acme ever works. But it's yet another, and there are some other examples too, but that's probably the last one that I, I grapple with in the book of how Coyote has functioned as an avatar for us for so long.
1: Tell us a little bit about the deep history of the coyote as a species. Um, What is their biological history, and how did they evolve in North America?
0: They did uh, evolve in North America, uh, and that's uh, an important element of the story. It explains a lot of things, in fact, uh, in uh, modern-day coyote history, including, for instance, the fact that we have... Uh, Along the eastern seaboard uh, and in eastern Canada today, the emergence of a new animal, which some people call koi wolf, which is a combination of of, uh, coyote, mostly coyote, 65, 70% coyote, but about 15 to 20% uh, remnant eastern species of wolves. And there's a reason that's happening on the east coast. And it's not happening in the West where coyotes and gray wolves in the West never do hybridize. And it has to do with this evolutionary story about the canid family. The canid family evolved in North America 5.3 million years ago. um, And over the next two or three million years, many diverse species of canids ended up crossing the land bridges out of North America and, Uh, continuing their evolution in places like Asia and in Europe. And so all the wild dogs, all the dingoes, all the jackals, uh, all the wolves of the rest of the world all come out of this American family of animals that began leaving the continent uh, and scattering around the rest of the world as of course, many other animals uh, have done in the past. But one of the, the American, canids that didn't leave was the coyote. It was uh, a canid that emerged into its present form uh, about 800,000 to a million years ago and had a close relative that left. uh, The golden jackal of northern Africa and southeastern Europe is believed, biologists believe that animal to be Uh, a close relative of the coyote that probably only separated from coyotes about a million years ago. And the jackals, what became the jackals, then crossed the Bering Land Bridge and ended up uh, in Africa and in southern Europe and uh, sort of the very edges of Europe. But the coyotes remained here, as did some species of wolves. We think probably the red wolf and the eastern wolf are animals that come out of this same state in America for the full uh, extent of their evolutionary time uh, kinds of animals. Whereas the gray wolf of the American West comes from a group of wolves that left North America as long ago as 2 million years and only began returning to North America about twenty-five or 30,000 years ago. So the gray wolves that ended up in the American West uh, the wolves were trying to reintroduce them to the Rocky Mountains and to the southwest today, uh, the wolves uh, on the western side of the Great Lakes. Those are all animals that had continued to evolve in Europe and Asia and then returned to North America about 25,000 years ago. And that separation between them and the canids of North America produced behavioral differences in them that made it really, has made it so far impossible for coyotes and gray wolves to hybridize the way coyotes and red wolves and coyotes and eastern wolves do. And it's as if coyotes can hi- hybridize with the wolves of the east and the south because they haven't been separated that long from one another. They recognize one another, it seems. uh Probably recognition should be put in quotes, but they seem to understand one another and don't have behavioral barriers that prevent them from being able to hybridize. So this evolutionary story, uh, to me, the takeaway has to do with the fact that in the coyote sense, it not only prepares them to be able to hybridize with uh, other kinds of American canids like these eastern wolves, but it also makes coyotes this sort of classic indigenous north american animal i mean they they never left and so i mean i've been arguing a couple of spots in the book that if you know you, we want to be americans we want to be citizens of north north america a good place to look for how to do that is at an animal that's as indigenous as the coyote is
1: and people have, as you alluded to earlier, people have been thinking about coyotes for a very long time as well. Um, tell us a little bit more in depth about how various societies and groups of people have thought about the, the coyote, both as an animal and as a deity, in the thousands of years prior to the arrival of Europeans.
0: I sort of lay out this book in the introduction as a biography of the species, and I, I argue uh, both there and elsewhere in the book, that um, except for humans, I mean, I, I've written a good bit about animals, and I have yet to discover another mammal with the kind of sort of not only marvelous and fascinating biographical story that the coyote has, but one with that has the kind of roller coaster ups and downs of its trajectory through time. I mean, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's an animal that emerges in its present form, Canis latrans, about 800,000 years ago. Uh, it doesn't encounter human beings until uh, we come out of Africa and Asia and spread across the globe and finally get to North America, which doesn't happen until something like 15 to 20,000 years ago. And so people coming out of Asia, as happened when Europeans came only 500 years ago, were encountering coyotes for the first time and kind of, there's no question, marveling at them. And so one of the fascinating uh, aspects of the story to me is that at the end of the Pleistocene, as so many of these large, charismatic American animals were becoming extinct, as mammoths and mastodons and saber-toothed cats and hunting hyenas and camels and horses and all these other classic sort of African-like animals from North America were dying off. Native people obviously observed that happening, and they couldn't help but notice that one of the animals that came through it was the coyote. And I think that, that instinct for survival at the end of the Pleistocene had to have been one of the traits that captured the imaginations of the people who first decided that they would designate the coyote as uh, not just a deity figure in their creation stories, but as uh, a kind of an avatar, a stand-in for human beings. Who they would then use in their stories to teach us about human nature. So they picked the coyote. I mean, more than thirty some odd tribes in the American West, everywhere that coyotes ranged, people basically made the coyote into this avatar figure and this deity figure. And as I write in the book, his his role is uh, it's almost like uh, a Jesus role in a way because. He's not the creator God. Uh, He's not the first cause God in their stories. He's kind of the earthly representative of the first cause God, because the first cause God seems to have set things in motion and then doesn't seem to be very interested in what's taking place down on Earth, whereas the coyote is. And so the coyote is dispatched to Earth. And you have to remember that this is a Paleolithic deity, by the way, Uh, Our more modern deities out of uh, Islam or the Judeo-Christian traditions come from agricultural societies, uh, Neolithic societies. This is a Paleolithic deity, and I think that's one of the reasons why, as they cast him and give him a personality, Coyote doesn't really serve the kind of function that the deities we're familiar with do. Unlike, say, a Jesus, he's not this perfect figure that humans are supposed to aspire to emulate. In fact, because of his function in the stories, he has all of the foibles, all the weaknesses of uh, ordinary human beings. And so he's set up then as this sacred figure who's responsible for creating North America, for making the rivers flow where they flow, for putting salmon in one place and buffalo in another, for teaching people about fire, about sex. Uh, about lust, about uh, all the the sins, as we later uh, call them. And his role then is to circulate among us, which he does in so many of these stories. I mean, he's right there present with people, loves to show off uh, how effective as a deity he is. And so he travels around uh, the American West and around North America, Uh, in these stories, sort of engaging with the people whom he helped create and, and, uh, bring into existence. So the stories are really amazing. And they last, of course. I mean, people are still creating them right down through today. Native people are still, I mean, there was a, a book of coyote stories published, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, that were new creations. So they're still being created. But when Europeans arrived, that roller coaster biography that it had coyotes sort of sailing up on high began to plummet pretty rapidly. We didn't know what coyotes were. Um, they sort of looked like jackals to some people. They looked like foxes to other people. But when Lewis and Clark encountered them in present-day Nebraska on the edge of the Great Plains in 1804, uh, after first thinking they were foxes, they decided that actually they were coyotes were a species of wolf and so they called them prairie wolves and that's basically for much of the 19th century what Americans uh, and Canadians tended to call coyotes they used the term prairie wolf and although we didn't really have a good sense of the role they played in the world I mean, we wouldn't do any science on them actually until the 1930s um, because They were thought to be a kind of a wolf. There was a general sort of disparaging kind of uh, treatment to them in the literature of the 19th century, and that really took a serious turn for the worse when Mark Twain wrote his famous book, Roughing It, in 1873. And uh, he not only told Americans that this was an animal that was more properly called a coyote, which is the old Aztec name for the animal that had come up uh, with people settling the Southwest. But Mark Twain also uh, ascribed some really uh, horrid traits to these animals and sort of kicked off what became a full century then from the 1870s to the 1970s, where First, we sort of compete with one another to to uh, write derogatory articles about them, call them uh, the original Bolsheviks, for example, during the time of the Russian Revolution, and then decide by 1931 or so that we're going to try to wipe them off the face of of North America. And so from the soaring heights of being a sacred animal, suddenly coyotes are on this uh, this very short list of animals that we decide are, are breathing up good air in North America and that we don 't need around
1: so as you said, Europeans when they first arrived in North America were pretty baffled by the coyote, and that you know eventually over the course of a number of centuries people's minds are sort of made up on where the coyote stands in sort of uh, North American society writ large. Um, How did these changing attitudes affect coyote populations, especially, um, as you said, once that kind of mile marker of Mark Twain writing about the coyote comes into being? How does this affect the coyote itself?
0: Interesting things emerged with respect to how Americans thought about coyotes in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the best way To explain that is uh, the way I do in one of the chapters of Coyote America. Uh, Ernest Thompson Seton, as uh, many of us know, was a famous uh, nature writer, uh, a Canadian who ended up uh, moving to the United States. In fact, he he, uh, ended up uh, most of his last years here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Seton, who wrote stories about wolves, about beavers, about all kinds of animals, uh, and also wrote nonfiction work about animals, too. Did a story in 1900 that was published as the lead piece in Scribner's Magazine that sort of captures uh, what was going on in the American mind with respect to how they thought about coyotes uh, at that sort of critical point in American history. And Satan called this story. Uh, Tito, the little coyote that learned how. And what that story was about was it was an allegorical attempt to explain what so many naturalists and animal writers and ranchers and people in government were beginning to notice, which was that Almost all of our grand animals, including those in the American West that had been so prevalent a hundred years earlier, grizzly bears, bison, pronghorn antelope, elk, were disappearing before our eyes. And if we didn't act quickly, they were going to be completely gone. And yet, here was an animal that was right there alongside them, right in their midst, and not only was it not going away as all these other animals were, as even gray wolves were, the coyotes seemed to be thriving and even increasing its numbers and, and spreading. And so Seton's story in Scribner's attempted in an allegorical fashion to explain why that was happening. And, and here's what he basically wrote. He describes this little female coyote named Tito who is captured as a pup and she's chained up in a rancher's yard for about three years. She doesn't make a good pet. Coyotes, unlike wolves, never chose domestication. So they, they, they are not good as domesticated animals. And so the rancher just left her chained up. And she sat there in Seaton's and story and watched all of the stratagems that this ranching family used to try to kill coyotes. She witnessed how they took hounds out. She witnessed how they set up poison baits. She witnessed how they prepared traps. Anyway, she observes all these techniques for trying to wipe out what Seton calls the coyote kind. And at some point in her life, when she's about three years old, she manages to escape. And she gets out into the wild, finds a mate. They become a pair, and they have a litter of pups. And as Seaton tells it, she then Tito then begins to teach all of her pups, and as he said, and all the subsequent generations of coyotes after that, what the techniques and stratagems were that humans were using to try to wipe them out. And he ends up his story with this very interesting reference. He said, you realize who Tito is? In the animal world, she's actually... A female version of Moses, who is raised among the Egyptians, learns all their stratagems, and then is able to teach the Israelites uh, how the Egyptians are going to try to suppress them, and he leads his people to freedom. And so Tito, Satan says, uh, functions in the same way, and this explains why coyotes have resisted our efforts to wipe them out. Well, I mean, It's a wonderful story, uh, and I suppose it explained maybe to a a generation or two of readers why that happened. But biologists uh, were able to figure out uh, over succeeding decades that the real reason is that as a result of having evolved alongside gray wolves for 25 or 30,000 years, which really beat up and harass and kill the pups of coyotes, that coyotes had evolved some evolutionary strategies for surviving persecution and harassment. And what those are is that they had become fish infusion animals. When they're harassed, they, the packs break up and singles and pairs scatter across the landscape and colonize new places. They tend to have, when they're harassed and their numbers are drawn down, they tend to have larger litters, and they're able to get more of their pups to survive when the surrounding coyote population is lower because, of course, there are more resources for the pups. Uh, And so they employ these colonization strategies whenever they're harassed by wolves, and when we turn on them as the major persecutors of coyotes they do exactly the same thing. And the result is, as we start trying to poison them out, I mean, we start first in the 1850s and 1860s, sort of spreading strychnine all over the West to kill wolves and coyotes and other animals. As that begins to happen, while it draws down the wolf population, the coyote population is able to survive it. And the more we persecute them, uh the more they tend to spread across the landscape. And so it's kind of this, as I said at the outset of this, Stephen, it's a it's a counterintuitive story that I will admit really appealed to me when I when I encountered it.
1: So It sounds like there's a long history of Americans in particular trying and basically failing to wipe out the coyote as a species, but you do point to the era around World War II as an important and rather grim milestone in coyote history, Um, and that's in part due to changing technology. So how did changing technology in the 1930s and 1940s change coyote killing techniques?
0: This is a part of the book that I've had, uh, more than one person, I think quite a number of people tell me it was hard for them to get through. And I mean, I've tried to say, well, uh, you know, it's a story that one has to tell. I mean, because this is, this is the truth. This is what we did. We attempted species genocide for coyotes after wolves were brought to heel and trapped and poisoned uh, almost to extinction, certainly to extirpation in the lower 48 states. And that happened by the middle of the 1920s. Then a government agency, the government agency that had been largely responsible for poisoning wolves into oblivion, it was called the Bureau of Biological Survey, which had presented itself to Congress in the early 20th century as the solution to the predator problem, that was how they kept their funding going, they decided that actually with wolves gone, it turned out that maybe the worst predator, what they called the arch predator of our time, that became the title of one of my chapters, in fact, was the coyote, that the coyote was the animal that was killing so much domestic stock that was wiping out all the game animals that people wanted to hunt. And so the Bureau not only turned its focus to coyotes so extensively that by the middle of the 1920s, they were putting out three and a half million poison baits across the American West to kill them. And they were using strychnine at first, but they managed to persuade Congress in 1931 to, pass a bill that would fund the Bureau at a million dollars a year for the next 10 years with the express purpose of exterminating coyotes, doing the same thing with coyotes that they had done with wolves. And so the Animal Damage Control Act of 1931 did get passed and the onslaught began, but the years rolled on, World War II broke out, We're fighting wars overseas, ultimately in Europe uh, and in the Pacific. And the Coyote War goes on at home. In fact, I quote one biological survey employee who says in 1945, okay, we've, we've defeated Hitler and Germany. We've defeated the Japanese. Now we've got to turn our attention to the Third War, this war against these damn coyotes, and now finally we're going to be able to do it. And what he was referring to is the fact that as a result of all the chemical experimentation during World War II, uh, the agency's labs, which had originally been called horrifically enough, it sounds like a Dr. Strangelove story, they were called the Eradication Methods Labs. Those labs began working on a series of new poisons that they thought would do the trick, and they created three new ones in 1943 through 1946. Uh, What they were trying to do was to create poisons that killed coyotes more slowly, because the animals were so smart and strychnine killed them so quickly that coyotes observing one of their pack mates eating a strychnine poison bait and then going into convulsions for it would put together the cause and effect relationship and would avoid strychnine. So the biological survey wants to come up with a group of poisons that will kill coyotes over hours or even two or three days. And they come up with three. One of them is thallium sulfate, which is a poison that takes about two days to kill coyotes. And in fact, it does so in a very horrific way. It causes the pads of their feet to fall off. It causes the hair to fall off their bodies. Um, There are stories of ranchers in the West finding groups of coyotes in the wintertime poisoned by thallium sulfate, hiding in their barns, all grouped together, shivering from the cold because they had lost their hair. And uh, in this one particular story, the rancher killed about six or seven of these poisoned animals that were still alive with a pitchfork. The other poison that became the hallmark of this inventive period of World War II was what we call 1080. Uh, 1080 is, of course, an infamous poison, finally banned for widespread use in 1972, but was uh, used all over the West and across much of the country in the period from 1945 to 1972. It was called 1080 because it took the lab 1,080 attempts to perfect it. And It killed coyotes also over a period of several hours, uh, and I describe in the book um, how it did so. And then a third poison was called sodium cyanide, and that particular poison, uh, which like 1080 is still with us in limited use, was used in a device called the humane coyote getter. It was a little uh, cartridge case at first it was a 38 special cartridge case stuck in the ground with a little tuft of cotton on the top of it with something that uh, had a smell that attracted coyotes and when they pulled the tuft uh, of cloth or cotton away uh, the sodium cyanide cartridge fired a sodium mist uh, into their face which uh, again like these other poisons killed them over a few hours So these three poisons employed across the country between 1945 uh, and 1956, the Bureau believed killed about six and a half million coyotes in the United States. And while that seems astonishing to us, what biologists were discovering at the same time that this was happening was how coyotes responded to this kind of blanket warfare against them. And what a couple of biologists named Knowlton and Connolly discovered and published uh, in the late 1950s were a series of articles on coyote response to this kind of warfare. And what they argue was that these evolutionary adaptations were called into play by this level of persecution. And the result was that coyotes became so fecund that you would have to, in a given area, take out 75% of the population, not just once, but year after year after year. In fact, they argued it would take 75 years for it to finally produce a drawdown in the in the coyote population of a given area. And when that drawdown happened, they argued that as a result of in-migration of surrounding populations, it would only take three to five years for the population to rebuild back to its original figure. So what the biologists, even in the government and the successors of the biological survey, were realizing by the 1950s and 1960s was that all of this effort, in effect, not only didn't wipe coyotes out, it spread them across the landscape. And that was one of the things that was happening in the 50s and 60s as we were becoming aware that coyotes were not only appearing in places like Louisiana, where I was growing up, uh, and eventually in every single state in the east and the south, the only state that doesn't have coyotes today is Hawaii. But they were also beginning to move into big cities all over the country. And so it's really as if you know we, we tr- tried to push the ball up the hill over and over and over again, and it kept rolling back down on top of us. And we've just sort of never really given up the hope that somehow we're ultimately going to be able to surmount coyote survivability. Hasn't happened yet, though, and I doubt it ever will.
1: At the same time that a lot of this dark science is going on throughout the first half of the 20th century, there are, however, you point out, a few scientists that are rethinking coyotes and their place in ecologies in the American West and across North America. Tell us about people such as Aldo Leopold and the Murray brothers and how their view of predators began to supersede older views of predators as like a pure menace in in North America.
0: I really think this is why... Walt Disney in the 1960s and popular culture in general in the 1960s had absorbed a different kind of narrative line, a meta-narrative about coyotes, is because there was a countervailing opinion running through the period from the 1920s on into the modern era. And that countervailing opinion came from uh, American mammologists the members of the American Mammological Society, who at their annual meetings in the, as early as 1922, 1923, began to take up the question of the role of predators. I mean, the Ecological Society of America only dated back to the decade before. It was formed in 1914. And one of the things that the founding members of the Ecological Society of America wanted to do was to study this old. Uh, old Western, old Greek idea of what they call the balance of nature. And so biologists in the 20s, uh, at their annual meetings, delivering papers and doing panels, began to take up the question of the role of predators in the ecological world. Uh, one of the people who probably played a really critical role in this was Joseph Grinnell, who founded the, the uh, Mammal Laboratory at uh, the University of California, Berkeley. And he was the man who discovered the idea of the ecological niche. And he began to, at these annual meetings of the mammalogists, argue that he argued two things. First, that we ought to be very suspicious of emptying a niche that nature had long filled. And what he meant, of course, was wiping out predators that he thought must have played some critical role, else they wouldn't have been there. But he also became the the first advocate, which is kind of how the government began finally to uh, to emerge as a positive force for coyotes and not just as a, a cause for their uh, extermination. Grinnell argued that in the new national park system we were setting up, we should not just have game animals, not just have elk and mule deer and antelope as featured wildlife, but we should allow the the parks like Yellowstone to function as natural laboratories and leave predators intact there too. Well, the biological survey who was sending biologists to these annual meetings fought against that idea all during the 20s and early 1930s, but it became kind of a key way for the biologists to begin to get some new appraisal of predators into the debate. Aldo Leopold um, is one of the people who, as late as 1918-1920, is an advocate of wiping out predators so that sport hunters who are going to replace predators uh, in taking or harvesting surplus animals Fort hunters will have more deer and more elk to shoot. And so Leopold is arguing as late as 1918. He published a paper in 1918 about taking out predators. But as he attends these meetings, it's pretty clear he's gradually brought around to some of the arguments that people are debating uh, at these annual conferences. And so by about 1928 or 1930, Leopold has, has been converted He's become an advocate of predators remaining in their niches. Um, and of course, one of the ways that you see it is when he publishes his great textbook in the early 1930s, he begins to argue that predators have a role to play. Uh, he's going to do so later, of course, in a Sand County Almanac and that famous essay in that book, Thinking Like a Mountain. But he also, and I talk about this in the book, he, he reviews uh, a volume written by two of the uh, Bureau of uh, Biological Survey scientists on wolves uh, that's written in the early 1940s, and they're still arguing for, you know, if wolves start coming back, we need to take them out immediately. We could, There's no place for wolves in civilized America because they're going to wipe out all our game animals. And Elder Leopold wondered in his review, how these guys thought that North America had ever functioned before Europeans got here. If it required us to keep wolves from wiping out all these animals, why hadn't wolves wiped out all those animals before Europeans had ever arrived? So by the 1940s, Leopold, who of course becomes the most famous of all these biologists of the period from the twenties through the fifties, uh, has become a convert, and I think he converts a lot of the rest of the world, especially with that widely read book of his, The San County Almanac.
1: And the crux of the book is, as you mentioned before, that coyotes are increasingly becoming a common sight in urban areas. And uh, mm-hmm. I saw a coyote not far from my own home uh, near downtown Pittsburgh just over the summer, in fact, so I can I can relate to that myself. Um <laughs> You talked a little bit about why coyotes are increasingly opting to live in cities, but tell us also about how people have reacted to having coyotes as new neighbors in urban areas.
0: There's some supposition that the reason we moved into cities 5,000 years ago was to get away from predators. And so um, the reaction uh, for folks who have gotten to live most of their lives in an urban environment where the wildest thing they see is perhaps a A peregrine falcon that's roosting on a downtown building, or pigeons, or rats, or things like that, or maybe raccoons. Their reaction to seeing what in effect is a small wolf trotting down the streets of their suburbs or through their backyards is that it's the end of civilization. (laughs) That somehow we have we have let nature conquer us and take over our cities and the very ground we're standing on. So there's been a lot of Uh, a lot of shock. Uh, I think people in the late 20th century haven't expected this. They've heard the stories about wolves and how they nearly disappeared and how we're trying to bring them back with a great deal of effort and how you can go out to Yellowstone National Park, and if you go to the right valley at uh, daybreak, you can maybe see a wolf trotting through the meadow. But what they don't expect in Philadelphia, Boston, Uh, or the boroughs of New York, is to see a coyote uh, cavorting out on the grounds of a university campus or lying asleep in their flower bed. So it's kind of been an interesting thing to read about, to observe, to talk to people about, to talk to urban biologists about. Uh, It's been going on, uh, actually, for a very long time, because coyotes are drawn to us they i think probably as a result of the way native people interacted with them for so many thousands of years they don't seem to have very much of an intrinsic fear of us it's like they've taken our measure long ago and decided we we're not we may be weird but we're not really anything to be very afraid of And they also are drawn to cities and drawn to our uh, habitations because our houses and the places where we live generate a huge surplus of their prey. I mean, they primarily eat rats and mice. I mean, you asked me about uh, the Murray brothers a few minutes ago, and I didn't carry my story quite that far, but... It's the Murray brothers, uh, Olaf and Adolf, who in the 1930s are given the first task of actually doing real scientific natural history work on coyotes. This is when people thought, biological survey thought that what coyotes ate basically were bighorn sheep and mule deer and pronghorns. And it's the Murray brothers who come back and say, well, 85% of their diet is basically rodents. I mean, they primarily eat rats and mice. And so that's why they're drawn to cities. And they entered our cities. They probably were hangers around Indian villages and camps for thousands of years. We certainly know they were in suburbs of uh, the Aztec capital in Mexico. But they entered our cities starting really probably in the 1880s and 1890s because of our modern dog laws when one of the progressive ways to clean up cities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries became appointing dog catchers and creating dog pounds and taking all these excess feral dogs out of the streets of major American cities that opened up the entry for coyotes To come into cities. And I mean, I certainly have found evidence that they were in Los Angeles as early as the second decade of the 20th century. Uh, And they seem to have gradually, as they've spread across the country, infiltrated one major city after another. They've started moving into Denver sometime in the 1980s, uh, into Chicago sometime in the 1990s. New York City is their latest frontier um uh, they've not only been spotted in places like Central Park but in Queens uh, in Westchester. I mean they're basically in all the outlying areas and they use bridges the uh, bridges and roads over the Harlem River, for example, in order to find their way into the inner city in New York. so they're they're drawn to us and as I write in the book, I mean it's almost like they've discovered cities as, a, a kind of a new national park setting, because people don't harass them in cities the way they do in the countryside. Uh, they're not being pursued by planes or helicopters. They're not being poisoned, and they tend to to get older. They in the country, they coyotes don't usually live more than about three years, but in cities, we've got records of particular animals that are living to twelve, thirteen years old now. So they're doing, the city life is turned out to be the good life, we're just going to have to figure out now because, the, I mean, resistance is futile. There's nothing to be done. We can't get rid of them. Every attempt to get rid of them only creates more. And so what we've got to do is to figure out how to, how to coexist with them. It's, kind of, to me, this marvelous new stage in urban life in America where we no longer can afford the luxury of ignoring nature because coyotes are bringing wild nature uh into our urban worlds
1: again well dan we've taken up a good amount of your time today so before we let you go why don't you tell us a little bit about what you are working on next do you have any uh any plans for future books coming up
0: well i had uh, two books come out last year uh coyote america and american serengeti both came out within a couple of months of one another so i've Felt as if uh, I've, uh, I owe myself a a little bit of downtime, but uh, naturally enough, I mean, when you write, uh, you, you can't help yourself. So I've already begun work on the next, uh, the next project. I haven't written the proposal uh, for my agent to take to New York to sell yet, but uh, we talked about it a good bit. In fact, we're having lunch next week to talk about it some more. And basically, I think what I'm going to do is, uh, is write a new current version of Peter Matheson's old classic book, Book Wildlife in America, which he first published in 1959. He did get a second edition uh, uh, from it in 1981 after the passage of the Endangered Species Act. But that book is uh, in serious need of a modern updating and an upgrade in a lot of ways. So many things have happened. We're of course in the throes of a sixth extinction now and um so the story is a big one it's going to probably take uh two or three years to write the book i'm guessing maybe longer than that i mean i'm retired from the university of montana now so i don't feel under a huge obligation to work at any kind of breakneck speed i'm gonna take my time and enjoy doing this book but it'll be some version a kind of an impressionistic version of wildlife in america
1: Well, I look forward to reading that. Dan Flores is the A.B. Hammond Professor Emeritus of Western History at the University of Montana and is the author of Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History, which came out in 2016 with Basic Books. Dan, thank you for coming on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen. it's great to talk to you.